All right. Let's start off with just praying together before we look into God's word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to this place. Jesus, we believe that you are here, that you are present with us, that you are Emmanuel, the with us God. And that changes the experience for us because you are the one that transforms. Holy Spirit, you are the one that changes us from the inside out. And God, we pray that your presence would remain in this school as there are people coming and cleaning and preparing this building for students to come and learn in the fall. God, we pray that you would bless Sheridan, that you would bless those who serve this school, who are resting this month. God, we pray that you would invigorate them to come back and to serve these kids. God, we thank you for their hospitality. It's a privilege to be able to worship you here freely in this public school. So we ask that you would bless them in Jesus' name. And we ask, God, that you would change us, that we would be people who are different when we walk out of here than when we came in this morning. We thank you for the promise of being with us and for being the one who transforms our lives. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so you are here for the beginning of our next conversation, which we're calling the Bible question mark. So I guess it's the Bible? Just trying to get my syntax right. I don't know if that's the right thing. Um, So we're going to be talking about questions that people have about the Bible. Maybe some people just have a question about the Bible generally speaking, like what is that? Or lots of questions about the Bible. And before we jump in, I thought that I would just welcome you into my little nerdy pastoral world. Okay, is that okay? Too bad, I'm doing it anyway. And um, so on your social media feeds, you might have comment, like current events or the, the latest movies that are coming out. And of course, I have that too. But I also have this great selection of nerdy pastor memes and things that come across my ner- news feed because that's what pastors do. So I, I brought some of my favorite Bible memes to share with you today, okay? So if you don't think they're funny, just laugh just for my, my sake, okay? So the first one is this one. This is actually from my friend John, who's here. He shared this one with me. How is Harry Potter different than the Bible? The majority of Harry Potter fans actually read Harry Potter. Uh, Okay, the next one. Let's see, what's the next one? Oh, okay, this one's funny. When the Bible is used straight out of context, face plant, palm to the face by Jesus. The next one is similar. When you told them to be the salt of the earth, but they chose to be salty to everyone on earth instead. I just saw this one last week. That one's good. That's funny. Couple claps. Nice. We're, good. We're doing good. Okay. This next one is, is really, really awesome. And that is, know your Bible, Isaiah 34, 7, unicorns, if you're a King James Version person. I'm serious. Look it up. Google it on your phone. Now, Ashish tells me that, no, 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 it, was, it meant to be a rhinoceros or some other one-horned animal. But in the King James Version, it says unicorn, so I'm sticking with that. Look at that majestic being. All right, thank you for humoring me a little bit in this, because this is some of my, like, dorky pastor world, and I feel understood now by all of you, so I appreciate that. So here's the thing, though. If you've paid attention to the public dialogue beyond things that happen on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter— You've probably noticed with people in your life or in other spaces in your life that there is a a lot of people, more and more people, who are wondering how could the Bible be relevant to life? This is a question that's being asked. Some people maybe are even done with asking that question altogether. It's not a secret, I don't think, that people are wondering what does an ancient book have to say about our lives in 2018? I think it's a valid question. People have 
a lot more questions then besides just that one. Why is it relevant? But then so many other questions. And it seems like to some people that those questions go unanswered or maybe even just they don't go addressed at all. Like nobody addresses the questions that they have. And what I've noticed is that that causes people to disengage from the Bible altogether. This idea that there's questions that that can't be answered or nobody's trying to engage with them. And so now maybe this is something we can't read, we can't learn from, and maybe much less we can't even apply to our lives in any way. So whether you feel that way or not, there's a lot of people who do. And I think there's a reality that all of us have some questions about the Bible. I know I do. Questions that often feel unanswered and I'm unsure about, that's totally normal. But the reality is it can become a barrier for us, can't it? in trying to engage with what the Bible might mean for us as a community, what it might mean for us as Jesus followers in the world today, what it might mean for us in our own lives. And so I want to tell you that that even though I've heard from some of you that it feels like there's a sense of shame that comes up when you have questions because you feel like maybe they're dumb questions or you should know the answer already or if you are a really serious Christian, you would have figured it out by now. And I just want to say, like that that could not be farther from the truth. You don't need to have any shame about that. It is good to have questions. In fact, I want to encourage people to stay curious about the Bible. Because if you're not wondering things about the Bible, then you're going to walk away from something that you're not drawn to. So I want to encourage questions and encourage us to let them draw us towards the Bible rather than push us away. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to talk about in these next few weeks. So it is complicated, yes. It takes intentionality to understand an ancient book, of course. But we believe that it has authority. Hopefully, if you've been around Mill City for a while, you have recognized that we see the Bible as something that has a lot of authority in our lives, that that even though most of us have questions about the Bible, this is something that is still important to us and gives us some sense of understanding about who we are in the world that we live in and who God is in relation to to our lives and what we're engaging in in our lives. So that's what we want to spend the rest of the summer talking about, okay? Um, So whether these are questions that you're facing now or other people in your lives, I'm hoping that encouraging all of us to just lean into what this might mean for us to, to figure out, okay, what does it look like to bring these questions up? Um, if, you, if you have questions that you're thinking about, we would love for you to send those in. Uh, you can email them at info at millcitychurch.com. You can go onto our social media. Questions you have, questions you've heard other people asking. We probably won't get to all of them, but it's worth knowing kind of what are the questions that are being raised, okay? So we're going to ask a number of different questions. We're going to talk about... Uh, various things in in the Bible, and when we get to those questions, um, we'll be addressing them here, but there'll be even more. I don't know about you, but I wish that the Bible was just maybe a little bit more simple and straightforward. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand, but I know some of you wish that it was. And that makes sense, because we're coming, most of us, from a Western perspective, and we like things to be linear and categorical and clear. That's, that's things that lots of us, not all of us, our cultures really value that. And the Bible doesn't feel that way, does it? This collection of ancient stories and letters and poems written thousands of years ago, it can't be just dropped like these memes, can it? It just doesn't work that way. The Bible isn't a collection of memes. It's not a handbook for your life. Now, this is a really common thing that I hear people say. The Bible's our handbook for life. Have you read a handbook lately? I mean, seriously, I brought the handbook to my Mazda. Have you ever read one of these? I'm guessing only when you can't figure out something do you ever look at this. That's happened to me before. I'm like, I don't understand why the trunk's not opening. Oh, you have to unlock. Anyway, so that's what this handbook is. Maybe you've read your employee handbook in your life before. Maybe once you kind of perused it. 
I mean, if you look through a handbook, this is not at all the genre of the Bible. Okay, so the genre of a handbook is not the genre of the Bible. The genre of the Bible is actually multiple genres, okay? There's multiple different types of writing in the Bible. And I want to suggest that none of them are really the handbook genre. Yet, I don't know about you, but have you heard people say the Bible is our handbook for life? Okay, so it's not just me. I just want to suggest that that's not what it is because it's not the right genre. The genres we see are letters, stories, poems, laws, so many different things that are written down. And I want to suggest none of them are the genre of my Mazda CX-5 handbook, okay? You can come look at it later if you want to compare. But I really don't think that it's true. So I thought, all right, if we're going to say it's not a handbook, which I so often hear, then what's a better metaphor for what the Bible is more like? And I was thinking about it, and what came to mind was the concept of a tapestry. A tapestry. So I'm not a person that has done a lot of weaving in my life or used a loom like this one that I have here, but I understand that in many cultures in the world, tapestries, um, this is a little tiny tapestry right here, where all these, this, these um, different threads are woven together. I'm, my understanding is that there are cultures all around the world that have used tapestries, large, usually, honestly, very huge tapestries to tell stories about their culture, about their history. In fact, there are tapestries that have woven into them different genres, different ways of explaining who people are, where they come from, their culture, their story. And so I brought some pictures of different tapestries that look small on the screen, but you can have to imagine that some of these are massive, and they take years to complete, and multiple people in a community would come together to create a tapestry that tells a story. And there's cultures all over the world that have had this in their past and currently live into this way of telling a story. I think this represents more of the, the intricacy of what scripture is, of what the Bible is. It's all these threads woven together that tell a story. You following me on the difference? Difference between the handbook. Thumbs up from Ramon, so I'm going to move on. So a tapestry. I think the Bible is more like a tapestry. Stories and letters and laws and poems woven together to tell one big story. And with our kids, we call it the big God story. And at seminary, we call it the meta-narrative. All right, so you can choose. I, I, I prefer the big God story. But this big story is woven together and tells something about history, most importantly, tells something about God and how a bunch of humans tried to relate with this God that we are now still trying to relate to. In my opinion, that is just not like the Mazda handbook, okay? So I borrowed this tapestry here uh, and this loom, this really special loom from a, a place called the St. Jane House, which is just about a mile and a half from here over in North Minneapolis. This is a, a house that is a spiritual retreat spot for people that some, some nuns that call themselves the nuns in the hood. I'm serious, it's amazing. They run this beautiful ministry for people, and I asked them if I could borrow this beautiful loom with, that has a tapestry you can see being created right now, uh, and they, they let me borrow it for today. Um, and so I just, I want to, to encourage you as we're thinking about this. Tapestries can be this huge, beautiful thing, but down to the little tiny threads, every intricacy of every little thread, part of engaging with an ancient text that wasn't written in our cultural context and our current time in history, part of engaging with a bunch of stories and poems and letters that are not a handbook, is that, yeah, it's not going to be as 
black and white or clear cut and not going to have all the answers. So just so you know, I don't think at the end of this conversation in, in the next couple of weeks, the next, the next few months of the summer, we're going to feel like, man, that is just cleared up. We are done asking questions. Because you know how long it would take to engage a work of art like something like this? So the important thing is, it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask the questions in the first place. I do think they're really helpful. So this is a questions-encouraged zone. Send us your questions. We're going to tackle some questions over the next few weeks for sure. Like, is the Old Testament still relevant? Questions like, is it really important? Why would we even read the Bible? Why does it matter? Um, another good question, what do we do with all the violence we see in the Bible? Okay, so there's going to be a lot more than that. So send us in questions if you have any that are on your mind. But as we start this series of questions about the Bible, I want to, to start with a question that technically nobody asks, but I think it's a good question to ask to start the conversation, and that is, how do we approach the Bible? How should we approach it? Because that's going to set us up for the rest of the conversations. Does that make sense? So I want to talk about that today. So I brought one of the most disturbing memes that I've seen in a long time about the Bible, and I'm going to share it with you, and it's not necessarily supposed to be funny. It says, the Bible is actually 100% accurate, especially when thrown at close range. And when I see that meme, like something, just this knot gets in my stomach, and I have this cringe, because I know that this is how some people use the Bible. They use it almost like a weapon, instead of something that is supposed to, to transform our lives and, and change our understanding about who we are and who God is and who we are in relation to other people in the world Instead, it's used as a weapon to try to get people to behave in a way that certain folks think they should. You notice that? So I see this meme, and I think that's the idea of these kinds of things on the internet. They're reflecting something that could be true. And so this is disturbing to me, but it's also something that I recognize is nothing new. All the way back to the story, when we look through Scripture, we see people handling the ancient Scriptures this way. So I want to look at a story today in Matthew 12, if you have a Bible, and we're going to look at how there's these religious people who aren't that different than some of us religious people today who are engaging the scriptures in a way that might seem like that meme, okay? And Jesus is responding to them very specifically and intentionally in this story in Matthew 12. So this is a part, we're picking up the story. Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He's called the 12 disciples. And now uh, we're kind of picking up the story on a, on a Saturday afternoon, okay? So imagine that you are witnessing this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests? Or have you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath." Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He hasn't even done it yet. And he said to them, if any one of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on a Sabbath, 
Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Okay, can we just look back through the story and let me point out a few things for you? So right away in verse 1, these disciples are hungry, so they're plucking plucking little heads of grain from the the grain as they're walking through a field, okay? And they're just eating it right there. And so um, these people, these Pharisees, they are Jewish religious leaders, and their job is to uphold the law and help everybody understand how to apply the Old Testament, what we would now call the Old Testament, these ancient scriptures, how do you apply those to your life today? This was the Pharisees' job, okay? So they're walking through, and they see Jesus' disciples doing this, and one thing you should notice is that they're plucking, I don't know, I would be a far cry to say that they're harvesting at this point, okay? And in the Jewish commentaries that are written, uh, like the Mishnah, which is a way that Jewish folks would understand how to obey the different laws, there was 39 varieties of prohibited uh, labor, okay? 39 things that said, this is the kind of labor you can't do on the Sabbath. And to be sure, plucking was not one of them, okay? Plucking things was not considered a, 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 an act of labor according to the Jewish understanding. Yet these Pharisees are saying, you're working on the Sabbath, Scholars have come up with a, a name for people who are this nitpicky about the Sabbath, and they call them extreme Sabbatarians, okay? Because there were extreme Sabbatarians. Sounds like some people I know in a different way. So clearly, these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, right? They're not that concerned about plucking. <laughs> it's not even in their understanding. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to prove that he doesn't know what he's doing. It's like they're doing like a, a first century meme of like throwing a scroll at Jesus, okay? You picture that in your head? And then in verse 3 through 5, Jesus says the phrase, haven't you read? Did you catch that? He says it twice. Haven't you read? If you look at other places when Jesus is referring to the Old Testament, he often says things like in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. Haven't you read? Why would he say you've heard it said to most people? Because in this time, people were illiterate. Most people couldn't read. They weren't able to read the ancient Hebrew text for themselves, and so they relied on people like the Pharisees to read it to them. But these guys can read. (laughs) They know how to look firsthand at this text and read it and understand it. And so Jesus is being so specific when he says, haven't you read? What he's really saying is, I know that you have read. He might even be saying, I know that you've memorized a lot of this, guys. Okay? And he brings up two stories. The first story that he brings up is uh, the story of David in 1 Samuel, where he and his friends were in need of food. And so they end up eating the bread that was typically reserved for ceremony. And then a second story about how in the book of Numbers, or the law Jesus refers to it as, the priests have to work on the Sabbath if anybody's going to have a place to worship. So they're set free from that Sabbath law so that they can create a space of worship for people during the Sabbath, right? So here you have these Pharisees focusing in on the tiny little threads, and what Jesus is saying is, what I want you to do is to back up and look at the whole tapestry, if you will, of this ancient scriptures, because you're getting so focused on this one thing that you're missing something. You're missing something huge. 
And on the surface, I know when I've read this before, it seems like Jesus is disregarding the Sabbath. He's saying, listen, it's not that important. Those laws are so 12th century BC, okay? Get with the times. But he's not doing that, is he? He's not saying that it doesn't matter. Instead, he's almost elevating it in a different way to say there's something bigger happening here. And in verse 6, he says, I tell you that something that is greater than the temple is here. And it might seem like he's referring to himself, but he doesn't say someone, he says something. And in surrounding context, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Something greater than trying to nitpick this little tiny understanding instead of seeing that important concept of Sabbath within this larger story, you are missing something huge, and that is my kingdom that is in your midst. This is what Jesus is expressing to them. And then Jesus quotes the Bible again, quotes the Old Testament again, in verses 7 through 8. He's quoting a part of the book of Hosea, which is actually a story, it's a narrative. And he says, you don't know what it means, this phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you understood what it meant, then you wouldn't come with this condemning posture like you are. Jesus is expressing that there's this important part that they're missing. And so then we move on, and there's a second story, isn't there, right? So he goes into the synagogue, this place of gathering for the Jewish community. This man needs healing. They, it says so clearly, they're looking for charges to bring against Jesus. All right, they're not coming with questions curious. They're coming trying to trap him. Jesus welcomes questions. He even entertains the questions that they're asking. But a trap? Coming against with a posture of accusing? Jesus rejects this here. And so he heals this man. And then it says in verse 14, after this, they, they plot to try to figure out how to kill Jesus. So are they saying Jesus needs to be killed because he broke the Sabbath? No, absolutely not. That's not what's being said here. He is, they're plotting to try to take him out of the picture because he's claiming that he can interpret what the scriptures mean. But wait a second, that's their job. So they're feeling a threat to their power. They're feeling a threat to the authority that they have, and they don't want to have anything of that. And so it's not about Jesus needing to be punished for breaking the Sabbath. Absolutely not. It's about him displaying his authority by saying, Jesus saying, I can interpret this for you. I know what this means. Remember that concept of meaning. Jesus says, if you know what this means. So I want to encourage you. Let's imagine being these religious leaders for a second. I am a religious leader, so I can imagine it. All right, so imagine being them. And they're trying to engage with this situation. Absolutely, I read this and I say, I think they were kind of power hungry and wanting to keep control. You see that in their life. But you have to remember that these Jewish people were also people who were oppressed by the, the majority culture there in Rome. So while they're people who have power over others in their community, they're being powered over by others in Rome. So you can see that, that it's not just about how they want power, but they're afraid. They're afraid to lose what little bit of control that they have because their whole life feels out of control. That's what it feels like to be under oppression. So I think we can maybe have a little bit of empathy for them. And then if you look past the power struggle going on, you see that Jesus, he's not abolishing the law or the scriptures at all, right? Like I said, he isn't saying it doesn't matter anymore. Instead, he's explaining that their core understanding and, and the meaning is not right, that they're missing the core understanding and meaning. Do you see how he was doing that? He wasn't saying, forget that stuff in the Ten Commandments. You know, that's where the Sabbath thing is. He wasn't saying, forget that. He was saying, I want to take this deeper into a deeper sense of meaning, and you're missing something about meaning in this part 
of this story that you're bringing up here. And I'm going to be honest. I think to some extent, I can see where these Pharisees are coming from. I can imagine after years of thinking that you understood the meaning of something, for Jesus to say, well, you don't even understand, that would be really hard for me. In fact, that has been really hard for me because I've certainly had that experience in my life. Over the years, different understandings of the Bible has changed what I thought it meant. The meaning shifted from one way that I pictured something to something else, and that was hard for me. Perhaps you've had that experience and it's difficult for you. So let me give you an example. When I learned that nearly every single author, every single person who penned these words in Scripture was somebody who had been oppressed, somebody who had been in captivity, almost every single author, it changed the way in which I viewed these words. Does that make sense? I mean, almost every single person who wrote one of these words down for the first time had been imprisoned or in captivity at one point in their life. And I can't even get my brain around what that's like, that that is not, that is so far from my experience. But it's certainly not far from the experience of some people in my life and in my community, is it? That feeling of being in captivity or being imprisoned or being oppressed. And so it changed how I had to understand scripture. It caused me to see scripture differently than I had before. Some passages that I saw this way, I now had to see a little bit this other way. You following me on that example? And so when that happens, it's hard to feel like you thought you understood something one way and now it means something different. And this is what Jesus is doing here. It's hard work. It's hard for our minds and our hearts. And Jesus, his whole being, was changing the narrative for these people whose job had been to uphold what they thought it meant for so many years. And Jesus is confronting that reality in a profound way. He's not saying it doesn't matter. He is engaging with this in an important way. It is hard work for our minds. It is hard work for our hearts and for our lives, but it's good work to try to understand the depth of meaning. And it's important work that we get to do together. So I want to do just two things to kind of finish this first intro conversation. We're going to have this whole conversation over the next couple of months. But I want to talk about a technical way of approaching the Bible and then a metaphorical way, okay? Cool? All right. So for the technical part, we're going to do my new favorite segment in sermons called Seminary for Everyone, where I tell you something that I learned in pastor school that I think you are more than capable and bright to understand, all right? So today we're going to talk about uh, three different definitions. You might have heard them before. Maybe you heard them defined a little bit differently. If they're brand new to you, no problem, okay? So we'll have them up here on the screen. The first definition is exegesis, not the same as exegesis, the guy, but about him in some ways, okay? So it's not the same. That's not, it doesn't mean Jesus, but when you never see it written down, some people are like, oh, it's not about Jesus the guy. No, okay, exegesis. This is discovering the original intended meaning of a given text through careful, systematic study. Exegesis is an effort of reaching back into the history to the original author and the original audience, okay? So it's going back and saying, what did this mean when it was originally written? What did this mean to the people who were hearing this for the first time? Why did Matthew write down these words and who was listening to it and what was going on? Do you see why that's important in understanding a story? Absolutely. Now, the contrast to exegesis is what we call eisegesis. Once again, not about the guy. A process where one leads into study 
by reading a text on the basis of preconceived ideas of its meanings. All right? So that's saying like, okay, I think I've heard of this before. I want this to say this, so I'm just going to decide that that's what it meant then, so that's what it can mean now. All right? People read the Bible that way a lot. Sometimes when we don't feel like we have the tools to do exegesis, we accidentally do eisegesis, and we say, well, I don't know. I, I'm going to, has anybody done the thing where you just kind of like do this and then you point? Okay, I guess this is what God's saying to me today. Not exegesis, right? This is a dangerous thing to do because it's not remembering that this is an ancient story that was written to people many years ago whose context is so different than it is for us today. That makes sense? So instead of eisegesis, what we're trying to do after we do exegesis is a word called hermeneutics, okay? So hermeneutics, finding the contemporary relevance of an ancient text of scripture and discovering the Bible's meaning in the here and now. So if you do exegesis and you understand what it meant back then, then you can try to understand what does that mean for us now, in the here and now. Does that make sense? So what we're going for is part one, the first thing we do, exegesis, start here. Then we do hermeneutics to try to understand what it means for us today. And then finally, that's going to lead to what is called a hermeneutical lens. A hermeneutical lens, very simply, a way of interpreting the text for the here and now. In this story, we see two different hermeneutical lenses, Jesus' hermeneutical lens and the Pharisees' hermeneutical lens. If you listen to the story, you'll hear Jesus' lens in which he's approaching it, and it's mercy. That's why he says, if you understood that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would see that Jesus' hermeneutical lens in these two stories The way he's approaching these ancient texts that he brings up, three different texts that he brings up, he's bringing them up with a lens of mercy. And the Pharisees are reading those texts with a lens of power and control. Because like we mentioned, they're they're afraid of losing that. Do you see the two different hermeneutical lenses? So when I gave the example earlier, when I approach the Bible, now that I understand that so many people who wrote this experience something that I never have experienced in my life, it gives me another hermeneutical lens to which I understand these words. So we all have hermeneutical lenses in which we approach the scripture. And when we're teaching about this together, when we're discovering what the Bible means, what we're trying to do is to have accurate hermeneutical lenses for what we read and what we understand. Jesus was coming at this with a lens of mercy. Do you see the way that those two, put that up there one more time for me, Phil. Do you see how those two lenses make you see that ancient, same ancient scripture just totally differently? That the Sabbath was something that God gave people because of God's mercy on them? Do you see how different that lens causes the reading and the understanding? Jesus was so intentional to say, he says in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew, in Matthew 5, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, or what we would now call the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So as we go for these next few weeks, and we're looking at these questions we're wrestling with about the Bible, Jesus' life is an excellent hermeneutical lens for which we look back on the big story of God. Jesus' life His ministry, his death, his resurrection, his words are a great hermeneutical lens to look back and understand everything that we see in these ancient scriptures from the poems to the letters to the narratives. We'll talk more about that. So let me me leave you then with this metaphor of tapestry like I started off with today, okay? 
If it's not a handbook, then I'm encouraging you to think of the, the scripture as a tapestry. A tapestry of scripture, if you're going with me in this metaphor, was woven together thousands of years ago by at least 40 authors, probably much more. And beyond all those people who authored it, for thousands of years, it's been interpreted into so many different contexts since the books of the Bible were brought together. Think of all the different cultures that come together. The Bible is always interpreted. It's interpreted first through language, unless anybody here was born speaking ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek as their first language. Anyone? No, nobody speaks those anymore, just for the record. You can learn them, but that's not your first language. So then first you have to do the translation. And so we have these modern day scriptures in our first language. But that's already translated, isn't it? And then we have to translate it into our context, which is so different than first century context. So imagine thousands of years, millions of people are, are, are building this tapestry of understanding and, and crafting this beautiful understanding of what this holy ancient scriptures means for us in their lives and then for us in our lives. It would be huge, wouldn't it? It would probably fill this whole stage and beyond all of the tapestry that would be woven together. And I think that that can make it seem kind of daunting, right? That, man, we'd love to know how to approach the Bible and never get it wrong, but the reality is is that sometimes it's going to be something that we don't get quite right, just like it has been for millions of people in the world. And it's tempting for me to think that if I don't get it quite right, it's like I'm going to go back and I'm going to pull one string about something that I got wrong in the past and the whole thing's going to fall apart. Anybody feel like that? My whole faith is going to fall apart. But that is not something that you, ne- that you need to approach in that way. It, the, pulling one little thread to try to re-understand something in your life is not going to, it does not need to unravel your entire faith. It's okay for us to go into this tapestry and understand the depth of the meaning of each of it together. And the most amazing thing for me about this book, about this story, is that we have the beginning, we have a lot of the middle, and then we have the end. And here we have ourselves, our lives, living right in the middle of this story, don't we? Here we are, right in the middle of this big God story that God has been telling for thousands of years. Your life, your family, this church family, we are weaving together like small little tapestries that are actually a part of the large tapestry of the story of God, this grand story that God is telling. If you want your story to be a part of God's big story. As I was telling you, this beautiful loom I borrowed from the St. Jane house, and it's, it's close to here, and the loom is actually used for many different things, but let me just tell you one thing that it's used for. It's used for one, a, an organization that spends time in the St. Jane house called From Death to Life. You might have heard about it here in the, in the area. It's an organization that's dedicated to doing their part in ending the violence that happens in North Minneapolis by trying to reconcile the people who have been victims and the families of victims of violence with the people who have been the ones that have caused the harm. It was started by this woman, Mary Johnson. I've got a picture of her. And this is O'Shea Israel, the man that killed her only son. And Mary has developed a relationship with him and started this organization that helps people to begin to heal from this violence so that they can be a part of stopping the violence in their community. And so, uh, so Mary, you can see in this next picture, This woman, Shiaki, in the back is a Japanese woman who understands how to use this specific Japanese loom, and she's taught Mary how to use this loom, and Mary will get together 
Other women, you can see in this picture, other women who have lost their sons to gang violence and homicide, and they will weave a tapestry that represents the life of their sons. And sometimes they weave in there a a piece of of one of their son's t-shirts, and they pick threads that represent his favorite colors. And then maybe they'll take a, a little piece of his baby blanket or something like that from when he was a little boy, and they'll weave it into this tapestry. And the women who have done this say that it's like the Holy Spirit just fills the room, and it begins this process of healing for them in their lives. And it's something that, that they can't even totally describe. But God meets them in the space, and thread by thread helps them start this process of healing. Today I want to ask you just to think about one thread of your life story that still has yet to be woven into the story of God. Sometimes we hold parts of our story back because we're afraid of what it would mean to let that part of our story be woven into the big God story that God's been telling. There's questions, there's wondering, there's confusion, but millions of Jesus Followers have tried to do good exegesis and hermeneutics to understand these words. And in this metaphor, imagine the, the, the string that runs this way. It's called the warp. Imagine that like exegesis. And then these bars that are coming down, they're called heddles. Imagine those are like the hermeneutics. And they hold it in place, but you're the one who can choose if you're going to bring your life to the story. If you're going to choose to take the threads of your life and you're going to weave them into the story that God is telling in the world and that God can tell through your life. Because perhaps if you were to take some blue thread that represents the loss in your life and you were to weave it into the story that God is telling, the stories of loss and suffering in this story would mean something different to you in your life. Or if you were to take some orange thread and weave it into the story and it represents perhaps excitement or something you're really passionate about in your vocation or a new opportunity you have, a new relationship, what would it look like to bring that part of your story and let it be woven into God's story? How would that change the way you engage these poems? Maybe you're in a wilderness time. That is all over this story right here. Maybe you're in a time of waiting and the Psalms that talk about waiting would be meaningful to you. I don't know what that would look like for you. But I want you to think about just one thread of your life that could be woven into the big God story in an intentional way, even this week. Can I just pray a blessing over you before we close in the doxology together? May you be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. May it be something that fills your heart and propels you to engage with this big story that we can see through his life. May God fill you with curiosity to wonder about those threads of your life and how they are woven into this grand story that God is telling. And may it fill your life with meaning and purpose. In Jesus' name, I pray this over you. Amen.